This message comes from the Orthopedic Trauma Association. Just because you're not getting on an airplane doesn't mean you can't attend the OTA annual meeting. This year's online meeting includes symposia, paper and poster presentations, industry sessions, social events, and of course, CME. If watching the meeting live doesn't work with your schedule, all educational sessions will be recorded and made available to all attendees. The meeting starts October 21st. Register today for the 2020 OTA Annual Meeting at OTA.org. Welcome to the OTA Podcast, your home for conversations with leading experts in orthopedic trauma. Please note that the views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Orthopedic Trauma Association or its members. Hello and welcome to the OTA Podcast channel. My name is Michael Blankstein from the University of Vermont and I will be your host today. On behalf of the OTA Podcast Committee, we're excited to release this special two-part series in conjunction with the OTA's first ever virtual annual meeting. In this series entitled Game Changers, we'll be interviewing several well-known leaders from the OTA community. We've asked each of them to select a clinical study or two that has significantly changed their own clinical practice. Our first guest today is Dr. Michael McKee, the current OTA president. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Michael. So Dr. McKee actually mentioned two papers he would like to discuss because they're very intimately linked. They were both recently published at Journal of Orthopedic Trauma. The first one was published in 2019 by Rafael Serrano, Hassan Mir, and colleagues. The title of the paper is Effective Nail Size Insertion and Difference in Canal Nail Diameter on the Development of a Non-Union After Intramedullary Nailing of Femoral na- Shaft Fractures. The other paper was published recently in 2020 by Richard Ewan Donald Adams et al. The title of that paper is Impact of Surrounding Canal Size on Time to Union After Intramedullary Nailing of Femur Fractures. Our 10 millimeter nails, all we need. Okay, so let's get started. So, what made you choose these papers? And hey, are these really game changers? So, I like these papers because they're both fairly large papers with lots of patients in them. They both come from reputable centers that have a history of producing results that other people can replicate, and they're usually quite believable. And they confirm a suspicion that I've had clinically for a, a period of time that really the wide range of nails we have, the amount of reaming we do for femur fractures are both probably unnecessary in most cases. And so the papers essentially both showed that for the vast majority of femoral shaft fractures we treat, a 10 millimeter nail is really all you need. And there's no point really in reaming up to a larger size nail that increases blood loss, it increases OR time, it may have a negative effect on pulmonary conditions if you embolize, et cetera, et cetera. And it would make everything so much easier for us logistically if we knew that we we're going to put a 10 millimeter nail in most of the cases that we treat. That, that's basically why I enjoyed reading these papers. Got it. Um, and I completely agree, but do you think we're ready for prime time in the sense that that's it? Like get rid of all the other nails and that's all you need? Is that what you're currently doing? I, I think that what you would find is that probably 95% of the femoral shaft fractures you treat could be treated with a 10 millimeter nail. You'd have to have some 
outliers for people who are physically very small, uh, small canals for whatever reason, either congenitally or after trauma, or for redos and revisions when you want to ream up and use an exchange nail. So I think that probably the company should still supply and you should still have uh, a variety of different nail diameters. But I do think that for the vast majority, I'm going to say 95% roughly, the fractures we treat, a 10 millimeter nail would be more than sufficient. I think it's amazing. I mean, one of the other findings of both studies is how high the union rates are. So in one study, the first one, 94% uh, union rate, the other one, 97%. And also another fact that we all kind of knew, but they they were able to nicely show is that it doesn't really make a difference. Uh, the entry point, whether it's integrate, retrograde, bottom line is nails just seem to work. Excellent point, Michael. And I would also argue that if you look at the, the cost of looking after the patient after surgery. If you have an isolated femoral shaft fracture that you treat with a reamed locked 10 millimeter nail, and technically the operation goes well and you're happy with it. As far as I can see, 95, 98 times out of 100, that's essentially a, a walk-off home run. You could tell the patient the first day post-operatively, go and see your family doctor in two weeks to have your stitches out. And apart from that, you can treat your leg like it's normal. You can walk on it. You can do whatever you want, whenever you want to do it and you're gonna be in charge here. And by the way, if you have problems or issues, here's a number you can call and talk to a nurse who will tell you what to do. And I think that that would be more than enough for 95, 98% of patients that we treat in that fashion. And there's evidence of that being effective in other areas that are trying to minimize the cost to patients and the cost to healthcare system of bringing someone back with fractured fall who frankly doesn't have to come back. And, you know, especially where we used to work in Ontario, a lot of people come from a long distance away to be seen. And I think a lot of that for these cases is frankly unnecessary. Okay. Were you once a believer that bigger nails would give you more stability or you're trying to get the slightly larger sizes? Is that the... I was absolutely a believer because that's what I was taught. And, you know, the first nail I used was the old Gross Kemp nail, which I think was 12 and a half millimeters in diameter. And I was always taught, ream until you get chatter. And then we have a millimeter and a half or two past that and put the nail in. And now that all looks really unnecessary. And I think that, you know, reaming to 11 and a half and maybe 12, depending on the patient, putting a 10 nail is more than enough for the vast majority of patients that we treat. So, I, you know, I was a believer in what I was taught. But now when I look back at it, it probably was unnecessary in most of those cases. Um, and if one of the nice things about these papers is they looked at, the ratio of the nail to the canal, which we were always taught was important, tight fitting nail. And they really didn't find a whole lot of influence on that figure here because one criticism of these papers could be that, well, if you know, you have a big canal, a 10 millimeter nail is not going to be enough. And they had enough range of sizes and enough range of nails to look at that figure and found that also it didn't make much difference to outcome. Okay. Do you have any limitations or shortcomings of the study that you want to mention or, or both studies? You know, really, I think both are pretty robust studies and they're both common sense. If you take the studies and apply what they said specifically, which is for an average patient with a femoral shaft fracture and you put in a titanium and they both use titanium sets, 10 millimeter nail with the five millimeter locking screws, then that's essentially all that you need to do for the vast majority of these fractures, assuming, of course, you reduce it accurately, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's a good teaching point. Uh, going forward and the excessive reaming to put in 11, 12, 13 millimeter nails that we used to do, that I used to do, is probably unnecessary. 
I don't think it's something that lends itself well to a randomized or prospective trial. There's way too many variables, and it's just too overwhelming the data from these large, large uh, groups of patients in two very reputable centers to ignore. And so it's really confirmed my practice and what I do now with these cases. Got it. Any other parameters you think we should be studying? Because, you know, these are retrospective studies. I know actually Rafael Serrano's group, they're talking about they, they're actually doing something more prospective now. But do you think we have any other questions that need to be answered with respect to the topic? Or we can just rely on two very well done retrospective reviews? Frankly, the thing I'd like to see next is someone doing a prospective study looking at follow-up. And you could literally, especially for patients who come from a long way away, you could literally tell them, you're good to go. You can do whatever you want. You can walk on it. Have your stitches taken on two weeks. Here's a number you can call where you have a nurse practitioner around during the day. And if you have questions, she'll answer them for you or he'll answer them for you. And, you know, people call it, you know, six weeks, say, hey, can I return to playing sports or can I do this? And as long as there's someone on the other end of the line that can tell them what they can do, I think that, that would be all that would be necessary for fault. And it would save a tremendous amount of time and money and inconvenience in the patient's part and could say the healthcare system money as well. At some point, maybe at a fine point, three months out, you'd like to get an x-ray, make sure that it's healed, which you'd say it's yes, 95% of the time that can be done remotely and sent to the nurse and she can run it by you, et cetera. But I really think for some of the things we do that have extremely high success rates, we need to look at minimizing inconvenience and cost to the patient, to the system. And, you know, some places, that are innovative this way, like Edinburgh in, in Scotland, are already doing that with simple fractures and, and uh, radial heads that are on display, Smith metacarpals, where we rarely intervene past the initial event, and it's been very effective for them. And it's definitely relevant during uh, COVID times. Yeah, and, that, and the COVID and you know whatever the next pandemic is absolutely makes this relevant. I, I saw a patient there, he came four-hour drive and the whole family just for me to see a routine femoral nail at six weeks and it was already healed. And I really felt that it, it brought home to me the, the, the futility of doing that. You do not need to do that. Okay. Well, that's it. Um, thank you so much for sharing uh, those two papers with us. These are definitely game changers. And I think that that's uh, something I'm going to consider from now on um, when nailing. And I agree. I was much like, yeah, I would go until I get good fit, but maybe you don't need to. And there's some major advantages in terms of uh, OR time, blood loss, etc. I agree. Inventory as well. All right. Thanks, Michael. Thank you so much. See you at the meeting. All right. Take care. This message is from OTA sponsor, Smith & Nephew, makers of innovative products like the TriGen Intertan Hip Fracture Nail and the Evos Plating System. At Smith & Nephew, we create technologies that restore the body because we believe that anything is possible when you live a life unlimited. For more information on Smith & Nephew trauma products, please contact your local sales rep. Visit www.smith-nephew.com to request more information. So now we're going to continue our Game Changers episode. And it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Teague, who, as you all know, is the OTA's immediate past president. Thank you, Dr. Teague, for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've chosen a very interesting article, which I really enjoyed reading. It's an article that was just published this year in the Journal of Orthopedic Trauma. It's entitled, Open Reduction is Associated with Greater Hazard of Hurley Reoperation After Internal Fixation of Displaced Femoral Neck Fractures in Adults Between the Ages of 18 to 65 Years. 
It was published by Joseph Patterson and multiple colleagues, centers from all over the world. And please uh, share why you chose the study and can't wait to hear your opinion. Okay, uh, Michael, thank you. The reason I wanted to talk about this study for your podcast is because femoral neck fractures in young or non-elderly patients are really high stakes encounters for the surgeon and the patient, but they're still relatively uncommon. There's been a survey that basically says at most North American trauma centers, less than 10 of these occur per year at any given center. So few of us receive sort of enough surgical reps to really get comfortable with the surgery. Uh, and uh, so I, I thought this was a great look combining the experiences of a dozen North America trauma centers that can give us some insight into the practical experience and management and give us some insight into complication avoidance. I agree. It's a super interesting article. And of course, you know, the question is always, should I open it? And, and many even very experienced trauma surgeons, I agree with you, are not very comfortable often with the anterior approach to, to a hip. And um, as you said, the stakes are extremely high. So, you know, when I was a resident, it was exactly that like you're taught, you know, you want to get this perfect anatomic reduction every time you deal with the displaced femoral or any femoral fracture in a young adult. And are we sort of changing that dogma a little bit? I think that... We are changing the dogma that the necessary anatomic reduction must be done open every single time. So do you want to share exactly how we maybe reached to that conclusion from the study? Sure. So just to tell you a little bit about the study, and if those listening look this up, I am one of many co-authors so I hope this doesn't seem too self-serving of me to talk about this uh, article, but Sam Morshed and others did the, did the real heavy lifting. We contributed patients and helped work on the, on the manuscript, but I want to give uh, a recognition to Sam for uh, helping push this through. 12 North American level one trauma centers, and many of them of really great repute, contributed their case series to this uh, paper. We had uh, 18 to 65-year-old patients really over about a 15-year period with femoral neck fractures treated by fellowship-trained surgeons. And we looked at those that were treated with open reduction and internal fixation versus closed reduction and internal fixation for transcervical and basi-cervical femoral neck fractures. Median follow-up was about a year and a half. Each center evaluated their uh, x-rays and classified whether the fracture had posterior medial comminution, recorded the PALS angles as proxies for fracture severity. A three-panel expert group graded the quality of reduction of all the centers x-rays and uh, like the faith investigators used basically a judgment of is it an acceptable reduction and acceptable was 
anatomic or satisfactory in both AP and lateral views obtained at surgery. The quality of the reduction was compared by those who had an open reduction versus those who had a closed reduction. The primary outcome for this paper was reoperation, which was deemed a treatment failure. Secondary outcomes include complications leading to reoperation like fixation failure, osteonecrosis, non-union, malunion, or uh, ectopic bone formation. And the interesting results are that 27% of patients underwent reoperation, including conversion to arthroplasty, revision fixation, valgus osteotomy, and removal of uh, implants. The group that underwent open reduction had a higher reoperation for non-union and for valgus osteotomy. Reoperation was not different for Powell's classification, fracture location, or comminution. And ultimately, we determined that ORIF had a greater adjusted hazard ratio of reoperation of 2.4 times. And among those who had adequate films, reduction quality, about 80% of the patients had adequate films to judge the reduction quality. It was acceptable in 70%, no difference whether you had an open reduction or a closed reduction. That's unbelievable. Were you guys shocked by the results? <laughs> I think some of us were were quite surprised. And as you mentioned uh, in in our training, uh, many of us just simply uh, assumed that every one of these requires an open reduction for a host of reasons, including anatomically looking at and uh, reducing that fracture. So, yeah, I think there was some surprise among the investigators. Got it. And what are some of the limitations of the study, in your opinion? Well, I think there are there are many limitations, uh, far more than we can can cover now. But one of the problems is is follow up. We had a pretty typical, what's termed reasonably achievable follow up, but we lost fifty eight percent of our patients before two years. ORIF was performed more often in younger male basicervical non-osteoporotic patients, and we developed some propensity score methodology to try to adjust for this and limit the bias that that might have induced. Additionally, we've got no functional outcome measures, so we didn't specifically recontact patients, and this is not uh, a functional outcome study. It's interesting, most of the centers demonstrate a little equipoise and there was a fair bit of closed reduction and a fair bit of open reduction at eight of the centers. But two of the centers almost always did open reduction and two of the centers almost always did closed reduction. So that probably mirrors you know, what happens at, across the country or across North America. Another limitation is that although open reduction appeared to increase the risk of, of the complications of non-union and avascular necrosis, and those were the most frequent reoperation indications, our short follow-up 
you know, may fail to demonstrate more lasting differences. So typical problems that we see with retrospective studies. Yeah, I agree. So, you know, obviously the, my biggest question is, and I'm definitely no statistics expert, is I would think, well, the fractures that needed to be open, one would assume would maybe they were the more difficult ones, the ones that could not be closed, reduced. So I understand that the statistical evaluation took that into account. But I guess my question is, do you think that that took into account that obviously the minimally displaced ones that were easy to close, reduce, then obviously these would probably do better than the ones that failed close reduction and then had to undergo open reduction. You know what I mean? Yes, I do. And I think, I think that is a fundamental flaw of some of our, or the conclusions. But again, we tried to take that into account by doing propensity modeling and take away that bias a little more complicated than, than I might be able to explain to us without the assistance of the manuscript and going through some of the methods. But we did try to take that into account. But I do think the criticism is valid that some of those that got open may have gotten open because they were the worst fractures with more high energy or lots of things like that. Definitely a concern in a non-randomized protocol. You know what I loved about the conclusion? I loved how it said, despite the fact that the hazard was greater of reoperation with the open reduction, you did stress in the in the end, which is super important, that these findings do not support the acceptance of non-anatomic or unsatisfactory closed reductions, and that's extremely important. Uh, so the take-home message is not, you know, just do it closed. Is that do it closed if you can get an acceptable reduction? Yeah, Michael, that's that's absolutely right, and uh, you or a wise conversation leader to bring that up. Uh, you know, we, we did want to make clear that we don't want anyone in an operating room ever to say, well, I can't, I can't really get a good reduction, but if I open it, uh, this patient's going to have more complications, so we're just going to accept this. These still require an anatomic reduction. I think the, the point is, in general, though, that anatomic reductions can be obtained without opening every one. Some of them are still going to need an open reduction. Got it. So the last question will be, has this study changed your practice? Yes, it has. So since these centers across uh, North America did not find a significantly improved radiographic reduction with an open approach, and these are some of the best surgeons I've ever known or sat in a room with, and since the odds ratio of reoperation is 2.4 times greater with open reduction in our facility, I'm much more likely to begin this surgery in young, healthy trauma patients with closed reduction attempts than I was before. I, I, I think before we analyze this, a basic cervical fracture that that has an apex anterior displacement in a 22-year-old, probably I, I would just start by doing that open. And uh, now I've changed that part of my practice. And if I can achieve an anatomic reduction closed, I'll proceed with fixation without a formal approach to the fracture side. 
Fantastic. So you've truly chosen a game changer article, which is exactly what we wanted to get out of this. And I must tell you, I'm sure there are a lot of surgeons out there who are relieved to find that that's the case, because many of us have seen x-rays that say, no, this is actually pretty good. Yeah, you can see a small step off, but overall, the reduction is acceptable. And now to know that we can just go ahead and have reasonable outcomes, as long as the reduction is acceptable, without having to open, would definitely be less stressful for many people taking trauma call. Agreed, Michael. Agreed. Fantastic. So thank you so much for your insight and knowledge and for choosing a fantastic article. And I look forward to talking to you soon. Okay. Thanks for doing the podcast. Good job. Appreciate it. Thanks. Bye-bye. And now a message from OTA sponsor, Smith & Nephew, the makers of the Evo small plating system. The Evo small plating system is designed to simplify your plating cases. It is a unified platform that offers advanced implants for simple-to-complex fractures. The system's 51 plate families offer non-locking, variable angle locking, and monoaxial locking technologies to provide you with a variety of options for small fragment plating. Speak with your Smith & Nephew sales representative for more information about the Evo small plating system. Visit www.smith-nephew.com to request more information. We're going to wrap up this Game Changers episode with the OTA presidents. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Bill Ritchie from HSS. He's OTA's second past president. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for thinking of me. Pleasure to be here. So you've chosen a very interesting article. This is an article that was published at Journal of Orthopedic Trauma in 2016. The name of the article is Short versus Long Intramedullary Nails in the Treatment of Pertrochanteric Hip Fractures, Incidence of Ipsilateral Fractures, and Costs Associated with Each Implant. This article comes out of Eric Lindvall's group at UCSF. So Dr. Ritchie, why did you choose this article? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, every morning we have sign out and we're at a center where we deal with a a modest number of geriatric hip fractures. So this subject comes up quite often and we debate long versus short nails almost ad nauseum. And so I saw this paper when I was reviewing the last few years, impactful articles, and I thought this would be a good one to discuss because it addresses some of the questions that a lot of people deal with on a, on a very regular basis. And it also has some findings that are relatively interesting and, and may not be known by everybody. And I think if they knew them, it might change their practice. Do you mind summarizing some of the highlights from the paper? Yeah, sure. So this is a, uh, a database study. Prospectively collected uh, fracture database was utilized. One level one trauma center and two community center were included. They had a large number of patients. Uh, They had over 600 hip fracture patients. And this was, there was no control here. It it was up to the surgeons to decide whether they wanted to use a long or a short nail. And they had, uh, again, over 600 patients in the entire cohort. They had 439 that were treated with a long nail and 171 that were treated with a short nail. Again, that was uh, based on surgeon preference. And they compared all the demographics between the short and the long nail groups. And and by and large, all of the demographic information 
was almost identical between the two groups. So I think they're reasonably comparable. One interesting thing, and again, we'll talk more about this when we get to the results, is that ballpark, about 50% of their cases lacked distal interlocking in both groups. Very similar, uh, 46 or 47% had distal interlocking screws placed and about you know, 50 some odd percent were treated without distal interlocks. And so what they were primarily interested in is looking at uh, union rates and complications, most notably peri-implant fracture postoperatively. Again, we talk about this quite often and historically short nails had a reputation of being associated with a fracture at the tip of the nail in the mid shaft of the femur. And then the uh, orthopedic pendulum, which swings back and forth every uh, several years, led us to using long nails. Long nails are not without their potential problems with anterior perforation and, and such. And so where do we land here? Do we land with short nails or long nails? Does it make a difference? I think this paper helps to uh, helps us understand where we should stand with regard to long versus short nails in the treatment of intertrochanteric femur fractures. Yeah, I think it was interesting that they had very high union rates in both groups. We're talking about this, as high as 97%. And with respect to follow-up, they did show that the longer the time from surgery, the more likely you are to have a peri-implant fracture. And they, they showed up to 10% at five years. Yeah, and that's intuitively uh, makes sense. The longer uh, an elderly patient in this demographic is ambulatory and, and the longer they live, the, the higher the chance that they're going to fall and have a, a subsequent injury, including a, a peri-implant fracture. So where were some of the highlighted findings of the study? You know, one of the interesting findings was related to uh, the distal interlocking that I alluded to earlier. In the short nail group and the long nail group, the vast majority of the fractures occurred in cases where there was no distal interlocking. And in fact, if you look at the short nail group, all of their peri-implant fractures occurred in cases where there was no distal interlocking. And in the long nail group, all but one of their peri-implant fractures occurred without distal interlocking. So I think that was a relatively unique and relatively interesting finding of this study. And what it tells me is that all of us that are treating geriatric femur fractures, intertrochanteric fractures, we really should lock our nails distally. And I think some of us that's common practice and others it's not. And, and again, I think uh, this is a potentially practice changing paper if you're one of the people that typically does not lock these nails distally. Got it. And I totally agree with you. I lock all of mine. So I guess that some of the findings are that short versus long nail doesn't make a big difference, but you should lock them. Is that what we're getting out of this? Yeah, and I didn't touch on that data yet, but if you look at the one-year, two-year, and five-year ipsilateral refracture rate, there was no statistical differences between long and short nails at any of those time points. So I think what it tells us is you can put a short nail in, you can put a long nail in, and we can generally expect uh, equal fracture rates. And if we lock distally, uh, whether it's a short or a long nail, we can further reduce the fracture rate. 
Do you have a specific algorithm where you like to use long nails in particular? Uh, that's a great question. My standard in my practice is to use a short nail, and I need a reason to use a long nail. So certainly a subtrochanteric fracture that starts to go into the shaft, I'm going to use a long nail. Any sort of standard obliquity, I'm certainly going to use a short nail. And then reverse obliquities or, or a very high subtroke is sort of a case-by-case -case basis. Yeah, I totally agree. I have the same uh, perspective. So with respect to the cost, they also looked at the differences between using a short and a long nail. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, you know, my personal bias is that uh, there's a number of assumptions that go into these calculations. And uh, some of the assumptions uh, may be accurate and some uh, may not be so accurate. They didn't account for post-operative rehabilitation that might be included. And the actual dollar amount difference when you look at the total episode of care really wasn't much different. I don't think that was a strength of the study. And I don't really think that that should really sway us one way or another because the, the cost difference is, is really quite marginal. Fair enough. That leads us to the next question. What are the significant limitations or shortcomings of the study? Yeah, you know, this is a paper that uh, has the shortcomings of uh, any retrospective study. This was prospectively collected data, uh, and that's a, a minor strength. But you really don't know if there was uh, some selection bias, although the demographics and the fracture patterns on paper were equal between the groups, not statistically different. There's always that potential for some selection bias on why a certain patient got a long nail and why another patient got a short nail. I totally agree. So let's uh, sum it up. Why do you think this is a game changer? How do you believe this study has changed practice? Yeah, I think this is an important paper because it deals with a, a fracture and a group of patients that are, we all deal with very commonly. And it, it tells us something relatively new, that uh, when we're doing nails for intertrochanteric fractures, we can definitely improve the refracture rate by locking displate. And I don't think that was universally known. And in fact, in this group at three different hospitals, about 50% of their cases were treated without distal interlocks. And this was including a number of different surgeons. So I think this is relatively prevalent out in the community. And uh, this, again, can change all of our practices. Fantastic. And when it comes down to it, it doesn't take too long to do that. And here we are learning that that definitely has some significant advantages uh, with this early interlocks. Well, thank you very much for this paper and for sharing your insights with us. On behalf of the OTA Pontus Committee, I'd like to sincerely thank Dr. McKee, Dr. Teague, and Dr. Ricci for sharing with us their insights. And to our listeners, we hope you've enjoyed this episode of our Game Changers series. Be sure to subscribe to the OTA podcast channel so you won't miss this high-quality educational content we have to offer. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the OTA podcast, a Convey MD production. Make sure you don't miss an episode. Subscribe to the OTA channel wherever you get your podcast. And to learn more about becoming a member and providing the highest quality orthopedic trauma care, visit the Orthopedic Trauma Association at OTA.org.